I'm your host, Rabbi Linda Schreiner Khan, and welcome to Tehillah Talks, where teens engage in honest conversation with their rabbi about what it means to be Jewish in the world today. Welcome to the latest edition of Tehillah Talks. As we uh, ask a, a question, right? Who lives, who dies, who gets to tell our story? Which is a quote from the show Hamilton, but I think works for us as well. And uh, I'm welcoming Alexis for her first time on the podcast and our returning thought leaders, Natasha and Helena, uh, to start off this, this conversation. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So, yeah, I was thinking a lot about uh, who gets to tell the story and what's the story that's worth telling. And as I think I did last month, I'm going to do something similar, which is think in terms of the big and then go to the personal. So from the big, the, the large uh, view, the macro point of view is this week's Torah portion is uh, the story of the Israelites uh, running and getting to the to the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea, singing at the other side, and then guess what happens? They start complaining because the water's bitter, and then they have a little respite, a little break. They go to this oasis, and it's quite lovely but they don't get to stay there for very long. And then they leave and then they start complaining about food and their complaints are very heartfelt and uh, both God and Moses are somewhat impatient with them. So that's the story as we receive it. I'm not giving you all the details, just sort of reminding you of it. And uh, I will start by saying that this reading for me this year, I have greater sympathy for the Israelites than I've ever had before. And um, I'll let you jump off if you have any, if you want to echo that or riff on that a little bit. Natasha, you look like you want to say something. I mean, complaining is a fundamental part of being Jewish, so I'm not sure why <laughs> God was so upset <laughs> about it. <laughs> but they've, they've been through this um, traumatic experience of having been slaves, and I don't know what their expectations were coming out of it. I guess that's part of my question is, you've been in a hard place, you get out of the hard place, what do you expect to have happen afterwards? Is God just angry that they complain, or is there other things that, that God is allegedly angry about? Well, if somebody gets you out of a tight spot, you'd think they'd say thank you for longer than a hot second, you know? Uh, was, it, was it not longer than, like, I feel like we probably did a lot of I mean, our whole religion is based around worship of this entity. Like, it, it does feel a little odd. Like, we did promise ourselves to him, to them. To her. To her, <laughs> to, to God. I feel like we've done, like... Since then, yes. But at that moment, I'm going back in time, is how we tell the story, right? And that, that's really my question, is how do we tell the story and how do we look at the story and it's the key story that we we tell at the Seder and we, we leave it off. We really do not go beyond that moment of, uh, you know, Miriam dancing with the people at, at the other side, singing a new song. We don't go into the details of the people complaining. <laughs> yeah. So, 
Alexis, thoughts on on this um this larger vision of coming out of something and then saying, wait a second, I thought this would be better. I, I mean, I guess it has to do, I mean, it obviously has to do with like expectation versus reality. But then I guess how high we set our hopes after something bad, because I think it's very easy while experiencing something bad to, in order to get through it, just put what comes after on a pedestal and imagine that it's going to be perfect and it's going to be amazing. And I think that's what happened here. So I think we're in a situation now with a pandemic where, you know, I, I feel like there's a lesson to be learned here of whenever this is over, whenever, and I don't even know what over means, to be very honest with you, that whatever was normal before won't be there in the future. And so what are what are our expectations and what can we learn from this 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 litany of complaining. I mean, it goes on it, you know, first they complain that they complain that they don't have enough food and then they get the manna. And then they're told, no, no, just take enough for one, you know, for one night. And then you can have a double portion on Shabbat, but people don't listen. And then they say, but wait a second, this manna, you know, it's supposed to taste wonderful. No, this is boring. We want meat. We want meat. We miss our meat. And God is not happy with this complaining about the meat. And all of a sudden, uh, you know, these birds come flocking in and they have more meat than they know what to do with. And it, the description of this meat coming out of their nostrils is so much meat is pretty gross. But it really is. But it, it, it's like, be careful what you ask for. Right. And how and, and at this point, what Moses is dealing with is is. Um, a disorganized mass of people, each one telling their own story. Natasha. I mean, I think what I struggle with here is that like to be enslaved, if we take this story to be literal, is a trauma. Like the idea that like people could not behave badly, like after experiencing something awful, also of which like they did not, I think our understanding is that they did not have a, a quote unquote like normal before this. Like this is a generational like trauma. And I think in that sense, the metaphor breaks down with what we're experiencing in a pandemic, as in like, this will last two to three years, like whatever it is, whereas that is a long, a generation of people who are enslaved over the course of many lifetimes. And most people will not have experienced a time in which they were not enslaved. I think like you, if you believe that the Jewish people or the, the Hebrews like should made a pact with God to be protected by God or whatever it was. And for that, you would get worship. And then you're enslaved for many, many years. And then you like, God finally shows up and you're free. You're kind of like, why didn't this happen earlier? Like, if you're all powerful, why can't we have just like one more piece of this bread? And like, if the birds get meat, like I would like some meat. Like, I feel like it's demonizing like people for kind of normal behavior and I think it speaks to like a flaw in the the God Hebrew relationship like I think it's I I actually time was remembering that I talked about a similar Torah portion on my bat mitzvah yes you did <laughs> but that the idea of like the God like Hebrew people relationship is a parent-child relationship and this is like a teenage phase of it in which like you are not totally independent and you're not like 
not independent and need space and places to grow and like also to learn on your own. But you also are fundamentally angry at your parents always for like bringing you into this world, not understanding you, like not caring about you in the way you want. Anyway, I've talked a lot, but I, I think this story speaks to that tension. Like, I don't know. Quite, quite effectively, I think. I think you're yeah. right, Helena. That's often justified, especially this current situation. But we always sort of imagine this perfect ideal image of what our lives could be and then compare our current state to that. And so there's always going to be a gap between that. So this this tension that we that we see in, in the text is one. It's not to say I mean, I, I could agree with Natasha and say, well, yeah, that it's this teenage tension. But I think it's also very human. And it's there to say to future generations you know, taking it out of the God and Moses perspective and putting it into the people's hands going, well, yeah, yeah, of course, they're really, they don't have the tools. Alexis, what do you want to add to the mix? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> do you think it has anything to do with the parent-teen relationship? Do you see that here? <laughs> no pressure to agree with I me. Mean, <laughs> <laughs> You'll just be destroying my entire bat mitzvah speech. <laughs> I mean, I think in some ways it it does, but I I also think that part of it has to do with the fact that they they just wanted something so badly, and then they kind of saw that they weren't going to get it at least not right away, or probably not for a very long time, and that turned into I, I think it was very understandable that they were upset about what they were being told all the time. So yeah, I think in some ways it is a parent. Um, teenage relationship. Um, and then in other ways, I do think that it's not because it's a lot more, I guess, sophisticated and different. It's a lot more understandable because oftentimes it's teenagers are upset at their parents for not understanding them. I think here it's not that God doesn't understand, that they're upset that God doesn't understand them. They're upset that God isn't making everything happen the way they want them want it to, not for lack of understanding, but rather for lack of, I guess, ability fix it now not later now yeah and there's there's that, that there's definitely that energy there right i want this taken care of toddler parent relationship <laughs> <laughs> i see that with uh with our two-year-old granddaughter you know it's uh not later now but it evolves and the next tour portion is yitro and and it's um and it's Moses beginning to understand how to deal with this people and getting good advice from his father-in-law and saying, you don't have to do it all by yourself, which is really helpful. But I'm still want to stay at this perspective of the people because this week also another piece of history. So this, this is our story, right? We have no idea about the historicity of this story, but it is our story that we carry with us and that we tell year after year after year. And, um, and depending on where you sit, right now, I think for the three of you sitting from the perspective of the teen parent relationship is one that is very immediate. And as you get older, you may find another lens to look at this relationship with, right? It's just, because every t that's one of the powers of going back to this these texts again and again and again our our perspectives change as I said before, my view of um, of having greater sympathy for the people than I've had in the past has very much to do with the with the pandemic and the frustration uh, of that 
even though linking it to another thing this week was this week was Holocaust Remembrance Week, which uh, was created by the United Nations to commemorate the Russian liberation of Auschwitz. So there's that story floating in the air. And we're dealing in a time where not not so much Holocaust denial, but Holocaust editorializing and taking away what what happened. In other words, turning those who were perpetrators into heroes in places like Poland and Serbia and the like, which leads me to another question of history. This is something that really we know happened. And how do we tell the story? You know, where, where do we, so I'm, I'm, that's really my topic is how do we tell the story and, and what perspective and lens do we use to tell this story, which is for me is personal, but also people did not necessarily behave the best when they came out of it. Those who survived were still in the process of trying to survive. And that doesn't mean that they, you know, that they behaved heroically. This is not about heroes and villains. This is about survival, which is very different. Uh, but it's also related to our, sto- our biblical story because it's about survival. How do you survive after trauma? Thoughts about where we are with how we tell this story now that there are fewer and fewer people who actually live through it. Any thoughts on that one? I, I think I always feel this tension with like what it means for Jews are people affected by the Holocaust to talk about the Holocaust within their own communities and what it means for the Holocaust to be like a tool of education or like a part of a history that like everyone on the planet has claimed to. Like technically you can teach about anything in history if you want to. Um, And I think like, I feel that tension like acutely And I think being in public school where that is something that like weirdly is one of the things that comes up a lot. Like I think always feeling a little weird about where you learn it and who you're learning it from and what you're trying to get from it when it's not your community or people directly impacted or like generationally impacted it doesn't mean I don't want awareness. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I get that. So I'm, I'm a first generation, right? I don't know that it's generationally impacted any of you, your families. I don't know, Alexis, if it impacted your family in the former Soviet Union directly, right? But yeah, I think I think it's different. It's ha- it goes back to that Hamilton quote, right? Who lives, who dies, who gets to tell the story. And how do we tell the story? And why does the story matter? And that's the big question I think that you're asking, Natasha, is why does the story matter? And I think a piece of the story that gets lost is that this is a genocide that crossed national boundaries. It's the only genocide that ever happened that crossed national boundaries that happened all over the world. That's extraordinary. Generally speaking, and sounds terrible to say this, genocides tend to focus on a people who are interior to a particular country and they are a minority and then they get attacked. It's what's happening in China. It's, you know, it's happening now. I'm not saying it's not happening now, but it's what what can we learn from the past again to inform the present? But you're right. So what lens? I I have such a particular narrow lens that I need help. How to teach this? Helena. Well, I think a lot of it 
at least in my experiences, is that the Holocaust has been taught as a thing that happened and nothing more than that. Not really delving into the specifics of why it even happened, not even what exactly happened, just that it happened. And so in being sort of just taught that it was a thing and not really, at least in my classes throughout my high school experience, it's sort of being like brushed over as just, you need to know this, but we won't go further than that. I think sort of, well, of course, takes away from it and what we learn from it. But also I think in order to tell the story, we need to really let history tell itself and hear these personal accounts that are becoming sort of harder and harder to hear now. But it's so it's the personal that helps us understand it better, even though they all come from different perspectives. Yeah, it was a unit in our 10th grade history class that um, I mean, this was just my class personally, but we never actually got to the unit. We never actually learned about it because that was a unit that was sort of if we didn't get there, we wouldn't learn it. If we ran out of time, we wouldn't learn it. So it was it was the extra. Yes. <laughs> the Holocaust is the extra. Alexis, you're going to say something. Yeah, sorry. Well, I mean, I haven't gotten to 10th grade history, obviously. But um, so I don't know. I mean, for me, in the middle school at our school, we used to have every Holocaust Remembrance Day, we used to have um, a speaker come in. Oftentimes it was somebody who actually survived the Holocaust and tell about their experience. So it hasn't been, I guess, for me, the extra yet, but it's always kind of been this thing where you talk about it on the week of remembrance and the day on, on the week for it and never really any time out else, even though it remains important and present and a big part of people's history. So it kind of turns into this thing that nobody really wants to talk about, but it's still important. It's floating. It's, it's out there floating, which is interesting because if I compare it to our, our story of leaving Egypt, we get into, you know, that story gets, gets sort of down and dirty. I mean, of the people complaining of them having going, you know, it, it, it gets into some nitty gritty about how the people respond to their trauma, right? And that we are talking about trauma and, and talking about the Holocaust. It's also talking about trauma. And um, I don't know that we as educators are very good at talking about traumatic events. I'm going to frame it that way. Natasha, you've had a bit more education. You know, any thoughts on that? Do you think we have any ability in that area? I mean, I, I think speaking to Alexis's point, like, I think I do struggle sometimes to understand. I specifically only went to public schools and like only got a Jewish education in Hebrew school. And so the times I learned about the Holocaust were like in the frame of a public school education, like in the American school system. And I think I do struggle with, besides it like being a historical event that is widely like disbelieved as having happened. Like I see the significance in that being talked about, but it does feel like there's a lot of like, almost like traumatizing aspects of learning about the Holocaust. Like it feels 
in some, it felt some, in some ways omnipresent to me in my public school education. Like it sort of came up in, in like elementary school and then definitely in high school. I, I can't remember middle school because I think I blacked out. But I think just that sort of odd feeling of like potentially learning about it from teachers who have no personal connection, who are like potentially teaching with an American lens of like, and then this war ended and we liberated people. And like before the Holocaust, like Jews were loved by many, like, or like not even that kind of misinformation, but just like that, that isn't the focus, like that the Holocaust was part of a, I mean, like a year, many, many, many years long campaign of like anti-Semitism in Europe. I don't know. I struggle with if it's, if it's important for it to really have that hold on. I think that's what I was trying to speak to before. I had a very odd conversation with someone recently about Anne Frank. Like they were um, like running like a women's center or something like that. And every month they like talked about a different like woman and like the attributes of them that they would want to emulate and they did Anne Frank one month and the attributes were like carefulness and I was like this is a young girl who was like (laughs) I don't know it was I think that is what scares me is that sort of misunderstanding of what Anne Frank's diary could be to people and how that is not like what the takeaway is like this girl lived under a fascist state and she had crushes and like, I don't want to emulate anything. Like, I mean, I think she's really cool, but I just, it felt like a very fundamental misunderstanding of what you were supposed to get from that. And I, I think, again, it's like the, you can either demonize the people or you can like make them into these like beautiful victims who you like admire. And I think that's something that I feel really weird about. And she was an ordinary, I mean, she was a good writer, but yes, she was an yes. ordinary young woman. That's going what through- I said. I was like, I don't actually think that Anne Frank is really like something you should be doing. And the person didn't know I was Jewish. So that was like a part of it. But I, I think that there's a weird, I don't know. And like in, in high school, like we, you looked at pictures of the Holocaust and like, I I think that I struggle with what that is supposed to give students and especially Jewish students. Like, what are they supposed to gain from that kind of like traumatizing images? I really struggle with what the point is. I mean, if anyone is interested in or feels strongly about a counter. I think forgetting is, um, is not the way to go, but I think the point is that we can't be inured to what it was. And I think that's the balance. And we as human beings, even now with, with the pandemic, right? It's over 400,000 people have died in the United States. And I think for most people in the United States, it's just a number unless they know somebody who's died, unless they know somebody who's really ill. Because other than that, we're really, as human beings, we have a really, really, really hard time understanding large numbers. A rabbi that I have a lot of respect for did a, a memorial Freedom Hoshoa many years ago, where people who came had to be, we had to be silent in this very large sanctuary. And um, he did this thing of one plus one plus one. And it was a chant. 
And then there were other things that happened, but that just the chant of the one plus one, there were no pictures, there were no images. It, you, were, you were allowed to think whatever you were going to think about what who those ones were. But really, the framing was that these were all human beings who died. And I think part of it is we lose sight of that when we deal with large numbers. And that it's, and when we see the images, they become images and not, we don't see people. I think that's what you're talking about, Natasha. And I think, I'm hoping that we've got, we've come a, a distance from the way Holocaust education happened when my kids were we're younger, uh, but it's still hard. Yeah, Helena. Well, what I also think contributes to like sort of the flawed education around it is that there's this prevailing narrative that everything's better now. And like, as we move on each century, we get better and everything is improved. But what a lot of people fail to realize or try to hide is that this was less than a hundred years ago. And that's scary to sort of just think about and consider, especially in regard to just the, our history, the roots of our history centuries and centuries ago, and that this is so recent sort of just creates this additional fear about it. Alexis. Yeah. Similar to that point, it also, um, oftentimes we're talking about the Holocaust, it kind of turns into, and after this, there was no more anti-Semitism, or there was almost no more anti-Semitism at all. And it's, that's really not true, especially now. There's We see it happening, and especially with people saying that the Holocaust just didn't happen. And it, it's, you know... <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, lasers from space causing forest fires run by Jews. I mean, let's get there. Right. It's when I was in rabbinical school, I had a class where my, my teacher, who's an esteemed professor, said he showed us a graph. He said anti-Semitism is just about disappearing. And two of us in the class said, no, it's not. It's just hidden. It's just hidden. And right now we're living at a moment where it's not hidden anymore. But I think this it ebbs and flows and people are demonized for all kinds of things. They're demonized for being too liberal. They're demonized for having money. They're demonized because they're other and um, other. And we're in a place now where we're other, where othering people is um, is popular by one segment of society. I'm going to put it that way. So what I love about I'm going back to the biblical story. What I love about that story is it was a mixed multitude that left Egypt. I love that line uh, because to me, it means that all kinds of people left, that they had a chance to get out and they got out together and they, and they had to figure out a way to live together. And, and the rules and the regs that we read later on is, you know, one who lives among you is to be treated like one of you, it, whether or not they've taken on your religious beliefs or not. They're part of the clan. You know, we're on this journey together. So to me, that's a very powerful moment of, of inclusiveness and, um, and that we do read on Passover over and over again. But I, I want to ask you, Alexis, because of your parents not having been born in this country, and I don't know if they've ever talked about it, did they have a special stamp in their passport that, that identified them as Jewish? As far as I know... No, but there were other things that they did talk about. 
because I know my my mom when she left Germany had a you know when when she left Germany in 1939, all Jews had Jewish women it said Sarah in their passports, so that they were easily recognizable as Jews, and I still have that passport. But that's but it goes back to what Natasha's saying. It's not it's not it's about the individual. They're not heroes. They lived lives. It was complicated, and we like. What we like to do with history is we like to smooth it over. Um, history is a weird kind of thing. We all have our own histories. We all have our own stories. Are any of you writing anything down during this very strange time that we're living through? Are any of you keeping track of it just to say that you'll have a, an opportunity, you know, hopefully in 10 years to be able to look back and say, oh, gosh, that's what that was like? Or are you saying, I just want to get through this? Where, where are you sitting with this at this moment? Just want to get through it or, or wanting to keep a record of it in some way? I don't usually write things down anyway. So now that you're <laughs> saying it, I, I'm starting to feel ashamed. No, 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 no. I'm not trying to shame you. <laughs> but no, it's it's not really the kind of thing that I I do that. I, I don't really journal or write things down or anything like that. Alexis? No, I haven't, I haven't been writing like, I guess how it feels down or how it felt down. Cause I hate doing that. Um, I can't get myself to journal, but in some ways I have, because, um, I've been keeping like lists of things I wanted to do during, I guess the quarantine and we couldn't go outside at all. And during breaks. And I have like a long running list of books I want to read and books I've read so in some ways, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm keeping track of all the free time I've had and, you know, finding new ways, finding new things to do. And, and, and you'll have that. And for some people, it's taking photographs. Helena, for you, are you keeping track in any way, shape or form? Well, I'd say sort of just in terms of social media, not necessarily like posting everything about my life, but sort of that, um, just for myself, I can look back at, um, a lot, a lot of the things I've done over the past year and I can track that for myself. And also sort of just looking at my planners and I write a lot down in those and just tracking that every day has just been the same <laughs> and um, <laughs> sort of seeing my thoughts reflected there a little. Yeah, I don't I don't think anybody don't think I'm expecting that anybody's writing a tome right now. It's just more <laughs> like I'm like Helena, I, I write little notes to myself in my planner, you know, like for a while there I was counting the days, which I now have stopped, though I know very well that um about around march 20th march 21st something like that it'll be 370 days which is an important number for me because that's the amount of days that uh noah was in the ark so um i just it's just a and i think part of it for me is just to know that i want to know that there's an end point <laughs> And I think this is that we play the tricks that people did in previous times when they were stuck. And that's why I brought up the, you know, I began with the Torah portion and a little bit about the Shoah, um, because I think I've been thinking a lot about um, 
my parents and my grandparents were not in a concentration camp. They were sitting in the city of Shanghai for 10 years. But nonetheless, I know that that was not what they were used to in Europe. It was not quote unquote normal. And they came out of it chained. And I know that even though we're not going to go through this for 10 years, we will be changed by this experience. And the people leaving Egypt were changed by that experience. And um, I think one of the things that we have at our disposal is to look to history, not as being cold and lifeless and bloodless, but to imagine how people got to the other side and how, what tools do we have to keep our best selves in the game and understanding that it isn't always easy and not to be so mean to ourselves. And I love the fact that the people in our story are such complainers because it helps. I'm going to say that because I think it helps that they're able to complain and moan and groan. And, and, and then we can say, you know, when we hear people worrying about getting their vaccine or, or whatever it is that they're moaning and groaning about, it's like, yeah, this is hard. And, and we all need to support each other in the heart. So I invite you all to each of you to have a, a closing thought. I know I've been sort of a more rambling conversation, but um uh, I look to all the you three very bright individuals to help me uh, stitch this all together. So um, any any thoughts from any of you? Natasha, I'm going to look to you because this does echo your the Torah portion that you did have for your bat mitzvah. The only thing I can really think of is a story my mom told me. I think it happened in Russia before before the Holocaust. But I think one of my like great, great uncle, Max, was imprisoned, I think, for being Jewish, sort of maybe vaguely so. And his wife came into the prison and snuck in like a wig and a dress and he put it on and he, he snuck out like, and they left Russia like pretty immediately after. Um, and like the guard, like, because I guess maybe like women covered themselves so much, it was pretty hard to tell like that it was him. Um, but. <laughs> I, I was I I think that that story stuck with me. My mom told me it when I was like ten, and it definitely stuck with me. Yeah. And what does it what does it give you? I want to have a really smart wife. Have your <laughs> wife be really really smart. <laughs> if you're in trouble, you should marry someone very very smart. <laughs> so, that's my advice. <laughs> Helena. Well, I think a lot of what this brings up for me is sort of thinking about the idea of active remembrance. And it was actually one year ago today that I visited the Holocaust Museum. And so t yesterday I sort of went back and looked at all those memories and looked at the identification card that we were given and read these stories. and. I just, I think sometimes we need to do more than remember, but we still need to remember, so. So remembering is the first step. Yes, yeah. And remembering, so here's the, so the thing is, remembering, if I remember, it's my own action. 
if I tell the story the way Natasha just told the story about this distant relative. Now, we all have this image in our head of somebody sitting in a Russian prison and his wife coming in with clothes and getting him out of there dressed as a woman. We all have that image in our head and it's very vital and it's very real. So remembering is more passive. Telling the story is is one way forward. So it's, um, again, it's that quote from Hamilton, you know, who lives, who dies, who tells the story. Uh, Alexis. But it's important to remember because, you know, it's a part of you and it's part of people. And, you know, even if we want to go back to, I guess, what's quote unquote normal, maybe we shouldn't because we need to remember this year and we need to do things differently and we need to learn from this year and everything that happened. So writing it down has some value. So it's when we come out of this year, it's going to be a reset button for all of us in a lot of different ways. We're going to do lots of things differently and a lot of things will be similar. But the point that I hope we made today is tell the story. Tell your story. Uh, share your story. It's important. And and don't do it. Natasha was talking about, about poor Ed Frank being turned being careful. Holy cow. What 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 a what a thing to say about poor Anne Frank. You know, as we remember people, tell the story and tell them tell it as, as multivalenced as you possibly can with all its different sides. And and that that's our our biblical story is it doesn't hide the hard stuff. It's right there for all of us to see. So with all of that in mind, I wish you all a very good week. And I thank you, Natasha, Helena, and Alexis for a really good conversation as, as we keep going forward. Take good care. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Tehillah Talks. For more information about Tehillah, go to congregationtehillah.org. Tune in next time when our teens continue to reflect on issues of the day through a Jewish lens.